You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 29th of November 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller. On today's show... Now the the goal in Georgia is to change the mentality and to finally move into Western 21st century society. Georgia has a new president with an unlikely backstory. My guests Linda Yu and Florence Biedemann will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including the arrival of global leaders for the G20 summit in Argentina, including a US president who might have reason to be crankier than usual, the ongoing rearrangement of deck chairs by British politicians as the iceberg approaches, and what would you pay for a bit of Eiffel Tower? That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Linda Yu, broadcaster and author of The Great Economists, and Florence Biedemann, the London Bureau Chief for Asians France Press. Welcome both. We will look first at Buenos Aires, currently welcoming the first national leaders arriving for this year's G20 summit. And as of the latest appearance in a Manhattan court by his former attorney Michael Cohen a few hours ago, American President Donald Trump might be especially keen to get moving if it turns out that Argentina's extradition treaty with the US has any useful loopholes. Apart from shared amusement at Trump's gathering legal difficulties, the assembled leaders will have much to discuss. Trade, conflict between Russia and Ukraine, and how long a given Middle Eastern potentate should need to wait to be welcomed back into the fold after ordering the murder of a journalist. Um, Linda, we will start with uh, the the hapless Michael Cohen's latest appearance in court this morning. Uh, I'm now, I'm frankly losing count of what he's pleaded guilty to at this point. Uh, this time, it seems to be lying to Congress about Trump's business interests in Russia, which, I don't know, you'd have to say that's bad, isn't it? It is bad because of the timeline. So uh, Michael Cohen has pleaded guilty to misleading, well, lying to Congress. He said that the attempts to get Trump towered and built in Moscow, he said those attempts ended in January 2016. But it turns out that's not true. So went on until June 2016. So this means that it is actually during the campaign period. So this obviously raises all sorts of questions about um, others in the Trump organization, perhaps individual one. There's a very, uh, there's a reference to individual one in some of these um, proceedings. There's a reference to individual two as well, which I think we can read as individual one junior. Yeah. (laughs) And so I think um, so. I think what this is opening up is um, all sorts of questions about what others have said and lied about to Congress, and whether or not um, the extent of the dealings with Russia, if it happened during the campaign period, I think it reopens a whole bunch of issues about whether or not there was foreign influence in the American presidential uh, elections, which is clearly not allowed under the rules. Uh, Florence, do we think uh, it is altogether coincidental that on the same day Michael Cohen appears again in court, Donald Trump announces that he will not be meeting Vladimir Putin in Buenos Aires. He's claiming this is to do with Ukraine. Well, when I say he's claiming to do this is to do with Ukraine and Russia, uh, his Twitter feed in a series of 
uh, let's say, unusually well-punctuated and temperate tweets is saying he's not um, meeting Vladimir Putin. So I think someone's wrestled his phone off him again. Uh, In the last few minutes, it's also been announced that he's cancelling his formal meetings with South Korea and Turkey. Um, So presumably if it rains as well, he's he's just not going to go anywhere. Well, I mean, it's just a mess, you know. I mean, he changes his mind all the time. So trying to be in his head and knowing exactly if there is a link between uh, cancelling the meeting with Putin and the last development is really difficult. It's the same like uh, about trade with China. He made a declaration because he left Washington saying, oh, we'll have a lot to talk about. And oh, but in the end, no, we stand uh, on our ground. So uh, this is such an unpredictable character that uh, honestly, who, who could know what's in his head? Well, Linda... If we assume that Trump is going to spend much of this weekend sitting in his dressing gown in his hotel room throwing room service service leftovers at CNN, um, the other the other rulers of the world are going to have to get on with trying to rule the world. Uh, that being the case, is there any possibility of any resolution on trade issues like the U.S.-China trade war? Mm. Um. I don't think it's looking particularly hopeful at this moment. Um, One of the latest announcements is that Peter Navarro, who is um, Trump's trade advisor, he wrote a book called Death Death by China. Um, He is going to be in the meeting. So that, I think, already doesn't bode terribly well. And we already know from statements from uh, the American side that um, they don't think the Chinese are prepared to do a trade deal. Now, I think the issue with this is the same issue that's been going on, which is If America's always had a trade deficit, for lots of reasons, how much of the bilateral deficit can they really expect to fix in the short term? What would it take for China to convince them that um, China is being more fair? And I think that's going to be easier in terms of saying, if China were to say, and this has been mooted before, we'll open up our services sector more. So therefore, America, the world's biggest exporter of services, you run a trade surplus in services, you can sell more services to us, that would reduce the bilateral surplus. But what's very difficult is that the intellectual property rights issue, that's really at the heart of this dispute. That's not something that China can fix uh, credibly very quickly, because that's about the legal system. But I always suspect that once we are heading into next year and the 2020 re-election cycle, if the trade wars continue to have pretty significant economic damage on certain communities within America, I think we'll find that a trade agreement happens pretty quickly. Because you remember a couple of things, right? So they've already given $12 billion or so to farmers. China's now buying all their soybeans from Brazil. So there are certain groups which are very badly hit by this. And um, Trump Jr. tweeted after the midterms, get ready for the 2020 cycle. So next year is going to be about how to position the economy so that Trump has a um, strong economic wind behind him going into uh, the 2020 re-election. And that I suspect, then I suspect, is when they'll do a deal and uh, fudge these issues. Florence, we, we should look at the arrival of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia. How keen are his fellow G20 leaders going to be on having their picture taken, shaking hands with him at this point? It seems they are keen already, at least for two of them, uh, Putin and Macron, who have said they would meet him. So I think for them, the game would be like to show their public opinion. Maybe uh, I'm not talking about Putin, but about the Western leaders that they don't embrace too enthusiastically and too immediately Mohammed bin Salman. But all of them have already said, well... 
uh, it's wrong what happened with uh, Jamal Khashoggi, but uh, Saudi Arabia is still an important ally. So none of them has said we are going to boycott him. So, I mean, it would be kind of a strange game uh, where they will meet him at at the margin of the summit, this is what they said. So maybe not that many official photos, but in any case, the dialogue goes on, obviously. Just as a final quick thought on that, on President Macron, whose arrival in Buenos Aires didn't necessarily go entirely according to plan. No one turned up to meet his plane, as it turned out. But he arrives at this summit at a point which, you know, the other major Western leaders that people usually think of at a moment like this, United States, the United Kingdom, Germany, are, are for various reasons, diminished figures uh, due to domestic politics. Is Macron seeing this as, you know, the beginning of his formal elevation to leader of the free world? This is what he owes, because the first thing he, he, he announced was that he was going to meet with the European leaders at the G20, as if he was really the head of Europe. And uh, it's uh, really in sharp contrast with his uh, statue at home. And uh, uh, you said he was not greeted properly. Yes, uh, he had to, to shake hands with the first person he met, who was uh, someone working on, on the air, at the airport with a yellow vest, which was kind <laughs> very ironic considering uh, the movement of uh, the yellow vest protester in France, who is really <laughs> weakening him right now. So, yes, there is still this discrepancy between his role, international role, where he's seen as someone flamboyant and taking the lead, and uh, the internal situation where his stature is really, where he's more and more unpopular and more um, really weakened by the protest movement of those yellow vests. Okay, well, let's look now at Georgia, which has a new president. Yesterday's runoff between the final two remaining candidates has been won by Salome Zurabishvili. She is a groundbreaking choice in a couple of respects. She's Georgia's first female president and also Georgia's first French one. She was born to Georgian exiles in Paris in 1952, worked for the French diplomatic service and didn't even set foot in Georgia until she was in her 30s. Well, I spoke to President-elect Zurabishvili a couple of weeks back. Here is a clip. Now the, the goal in Georgia is to change the mentality and to finally move into Western 21st century society. So it's the society part that I think will be very important. And for a president with those functions, for a women president and for a European president, the task will be both very challenging and very needed in today's Georgia, where we need really to go the last way out of the post-post-Soviet space. And that has to do with society more than with democratic systems and rules. We have almost everything. Now we've had an election which was very close. So we are quite far down the democratic system. But there are still many things that have to be changed in the society, in the mentality, so that we leave the past behind. And I think that this campaign, unfortunately, but maybe that's uh, an example and a sign, uh, is the last of a very Soviet-type campaign. Well, that interview will appear in full in a coming edition of Monocle's Winter Weekly newspaper, the first edition of which I think I'm right in saying is on a newsstand now or very, very shortly. Um, Florence, first of all, is, is her elevation to or election to Georgia's presidency been a big story in France? Uh, yes, I mean, big. No, I mean, there, there are bigger stories right now, of like, course. again, the, the protest against Macron. But OK, let's say she's, she's famous in certain circles. I mean, I wouldn't bet like you go in a, in a village in the south or west of France <laughs> and people would know who she is. She, she is known as this former diplomat. There was also 
uh, a certain amount of interest because of that. But I mean, it's still limited. It, it is an extraordinary story. I, I did want to talk in more general terms about the role she's going to occupy. The, the role of the Georgian president is due to shift somewhat. It's going to become a largely ceremonial role. Um, Linda, for countries that have uh, an elected person in that, and it is actually pretty common um, that you have one person embodying the state and another person runs the government. The United States is quite unusual uh, in combining them. So is France. Um, But does whoever occupies such a role actually tell us much about that country? Can we draw conclusions about Georgia in 2018 by the person they have elected their president? Um, Well, I think in terms of the... um who she is, I think she does make a statement. And obviously, it's been already commented on that she's French-born. She hadn't set foot into Georgia. Of course, she was foreign minister of Georgia, wasn't she? Uh, she was previously, yes, yes. That's right. So she has actually had a career in the diplomatic service um, in her country. And obviously, she's the first woman. So um, I would think that those facts alone um, really mean that whatever role she takes, um, you know, whether it's really running the government or it becomes or ceremonial, it's directly elected, they're moving to electoral college, all of those things. I think she's she's symbolic in 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 that interview clip that you that we just heard. She's talking about moving Georgia into much more of a 21st century um, governance system. And I think all of those things really do matter, even if you even if she isn't uh, fully the person running the government. I think the, there are other countries where you have very important influential presidents like Ireland, where Indeed. they tend to elect very high profile. Um, and actually several women have occupied that post. And I think that does, um, it does say something about the uh, the intent of the country uh, to be uh, modern um, and uh, to be embracing of difference. Because there are echoes here of a, a, a dispute which occasionally embroils my own home country of Australia about whether we should, if, if Australia was to become a republic, what we would do about having a head of state. And when this was put to the people in 2000, 2001, the option was we either keep what we have, which is what we decided to do, or we replace the governor general with a, a ceremonial head of state appointed by parliament not elected by the people. And that is the model that Georgia is going to move to, that the future presidents will be chosen by the parliament rather than the people, Um, which I think I actually prefer. Florence, what do you think? Do you think it is important that people should be able to elect their head of state, even if their head of state's job is basically cutting ribbons, shaking hands, kissing babies and making speeches. I think what's more important than the system is uh, the the democracy and the way the democracy functions around. Like when Linda says, uh, yes, it's a statement that a woman is elected. It's true. Okay, there was also um, the the president of uh, Yulia Timoshenko being elected in Ukraine. I I wouldn't say because you are a woman, you know, you are automatically representing uh, something like uh, a revolution and and a positive evolution. I mean, what's behind uh, the election in Georgia also? Uh, She's a member of a party who is in power, uh, which is not that uh, democratic. Maybe there was some problems during the election. She did run as a nominal independent. Independent, but supported by uh, the party in power. And there was some kind of uh, accusation of uh, vote rigging because there was a massive cancelling of debts uh, in agreement with the banks by the the government that supports her. So, I mean, there are lots of questions around her, um, not only about the fact of being a woman and a president. And I would say, yeah, whatever the system is, whether it's like in Australia or in France, I mean, what counts is uh, the value that are represented 
supported by the government more than the system. Uh, Linda, she's very keen uh, on Georgia joining both NATO and the EU, uh, which are two ambitions straight out of the easier said than done file. Um, Are either of those things actually possible? It is possible, but I think for both, um, she would have to establish that Georgia really is a democracy, not just in a titular form, but actually in an effective um, operative form. So in other words, the EU has values that they would want any new nation to really show they can fulfill. And it's not just a question of economic development, it's actually around your institutions. And democracy is a big part of that. And justice and a lot of things, which I think... um, Um, she would have to show that she could meet. Now, NATO, it's, I think, very similar in that it is, again, an alliance. And actually, these are not the only uh, ones. Um, Most of these uh, international organizations have democracy as a prerequisite. So um, some years ago, um, there was, I think someone told me that China couldn't be a member of the IEA. I might be getting this wrong, but it was one of the oil bodies um, because it wasn't a democracy, even though it was the world's biggest consumer of oil. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, nope, you got to stick to your values. (laughs) Uh, For Florence, would both the EU and NATO, though, not regard Georgia is just buying a massive headache. This is a country with two Russian-backed breakaway republics currently carved out of its territory. Yes, I think so. I mean, this is... uh, uh, Look at what's happening in Ukraine, you know. Ukraine wanted to be a member of the EU and of NATO and uh, see the situation they are in. (laughs) So, I mean, I I would say even... uh, even the new president and the EU would trade very carefully on this, like because you don't want to, like feel like uh, there is a provocation towards Russia. I mean, which was the, the whole story in Ukraine. So Ukraine is really something like you have to think over before you decide to deepen the links. And I think on both sides, also on Georgia's side, they will think it over before they do any step uh, toward the NATO integration. Because, I mean, it could be the same game as uh, Russia with Crimea, you know. Those two separatist little republics could be used by Moscow, obviously, to destabilize Georgia, which they have done in the past. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Linda Yu and Florence Biedemann. Coming up next, calculating again the costs of Brexit. Our very own Monocle Library is growing into a robust collection of well-turned-out titles. For an in-depth look into our core theme of quality of life, why not delve into our first ever book, The Monocle Guide to Better Living? For any would-be business leaders, entrepreneurs, or even established companies in search of fresh ideas, there's The Monocle Guide to Good Business. In How to Make a Nation, A Monocle Guide, we look at the small and the big things that can help make our nations work better. And in The Monocle Guide to Drinking and Dining, we bypass the foam and the fuss to uncover the makings of a truly great meal. Monocle's handsome books are published by our friends at Gestalten in Berlin and offer a world of new experiences between the covers. So spruce up your shelves today and buy some of our titles online at monocle.com or from any good bookstore.
You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Mullister, with me are Linda Yu and Florence Biederman. And here in the UK, it seems at last to have dawned on the people running the place that Brexit is actually going to happen and quite soon, even if nobody seems all that clear on how. The Prime Minister, Theresa May, a Remainer pretending to be a Lever, is offering to debate the leader of the opposition, Jeremy Corbyn, a Lever pretending to be a Remainer, on television. Given that everyone already knows what they both claim to think, the usefulness of this exercise seems debatable. Meanwhile, further projections about the effects of Brexit, especially a no-deal one, continue to emerge. None of them encouraging. Um, Florence, on the debate, first of all, how excited are you? Will you be clearing your schedule for that, even if they do manage to agree which television channel it's actually going to be on and whether or not it's going to clash with the final of Strictly Come Dancing? I'm, I'm That's the point. <laughs> is there a clash with I'm, cel- I'm a celebrity? Oh, is it? I, I lose track. <laughs> I mean, that's the point. You know, being a foreigner, it's not that I follow very, very closely Strictly Come Dancing. It's or apparently that kind of not. Stuff. It's the other one. So it's, it's, it's easier for me, like, to follow the debate. Okay, that's the one with that, that. That's not that. So it's the one without the cakes or the dancing, right? <laughs> yes, that's right. Okay. The bugs. No, well. I, I think it will be still a, a thrilling political moment. Let's say it's debatable, as you said, whether this will have a, a strong impact on the voters. But it, it will be also interesting, you know, because maybe we will learn more about what Jeremy Corbyn really wants, as you said, like Remainer Lever. It has not, never been very clear. So. Let's wait and see if we learn anything on that side. Because on the side of Theresa May, we know already what she will say, definitely. Indeed. So, Linda, are the economic consequences actually starting to come into focus now? I think so. I mean, I think we've had some pretty stark um, assessments coming None out of from it's the been government. good, has it? <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> have you noticed the very, uh, the very precise phrase that the Chancellor and the Prime Minister use? So all the assessments show that under every scenario, um, so, so long as the UK is not in the EU single market, um, GDP over the next 15 years is going to be smaller by some percentage, you know, as small as about a fifth of a percent to as high about 10%. Um, but the Chancellor said um, it's a very modest amount relative to projected growth in the central scenario. So then Theresa May said, it's not true to say we're, the country is going to be poor. But you see that turn of phrase because the economy is growing. So you're not as, you're not going to be poor, but you're not going to be as rich as you were. I think that would be the more fair way to, to phrase it. But I mean, I, I, I'm mentioning all of this because I think obviously no one really knows what it's going to look like in 15 years. But what has become clear between the Bank of England, the government and all sorts of independent assessments, the consensus is that in the short term, there's going to be an economic hit. Now, my worry is that that's all pretty well known, even if you um, allow for the politician's sort of version of it, that's all pretty well um, understood. I think the big unknown is whether or not any of these uh, financial institutions, uh, companies, the government is ready to leave the EU um, on March 29th without a deal if the withdrawal agreement doesn't get through Parliament on December the 11th. So Theresa May said today she will pre- prepare for a no-deal scenario if she doesn't get uh, the votes to pass uh, the withdrawal deal. Now, it's it's fine for her to say she's going to prepare, but look at the timing. I mean, you only have a few months. And I think um, Governor Mark Carney, the Bank of England, uh, said today, uh, most of the companies they've surveyed, he doesn't think the majority or most of them are prepared, um, have been thinking about no deal. 
Florence, what's your sense of how concerned the rest of the EU is about a no-deal Brexit? Because obviously it would be it would be very, very, very bad for the United Kingdom, but it wouldn't be great for the rest of the EU either. <clears throat> it would just be bad when it would be very, very bad for the UK. Now, uh, the French Minister of Finance today said, oh, well, the French companies are, are not prepared enough for a no-deal scenario. But I think nobody really is, you know, because as Linda said, I mean, to, to make predictions, scenarios, forecasts, what would be in 15 years, even in six years, you know, I mean, it's so difficult. So uh, the point is nobody knows what will happen. Nobody knows, I mean, Many people think on the 11th of December the deal will be rejected because Theresa May doesn't have a majority in Parliament and then what happens next is really still completely open. So it's really difficult at this point even for uh, companies, I mean, to, 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 to um, prepare anything. I mean, the point is it's just instability so far. Uh, but, but what really struck me after all this doomsday prediction uh, that were published yesterday is that uh, the market didn't move. So it's as if they didn't really believe in them because normally, you know, when you have kind of Or they've already factored it in. <laughs> well, one or the other. Well, we have all that to look forward to. Uh, but finally tonight, uh, any listeners who have long harboured ambitions of owning discarded chunks of the Eiffel Tower, an electricity pylon with a souvenir stand that France has somehow turned into a tourist attraction, now have an idea of where the market is at. A Middle Eastern collector has paid €169,000 at auction for a four-metre stretch of staircase, one of 24 sections cut away in 1983 to allow the installation of a lift between the top two floors. Um, Florence, what would you have bid on a section of Eiffel Tower staircase yourself? A lot. <laughs> really? Would you have given this bloke a run for his money? 169,000 euros? No, I mean, you know, this kind of business with memorabilia has always existed in a way. But I think the best example of that is the Berlin Wall, because it was so big, so long, so large that it went in chunks. And I think some, on, you still have some, some pieces of it on auction or in collection. I have one of those. Um, I, 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 well, I have a stone. No. See, I, 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 I was going to ask if either of you actually owned any portions of national monuments, and it turns out we all own bits of Berlin Wall. How, how, how convinced are you, however, of the, the, uh, the bona fides of yours? Because it's not been unheard of for various enterprising Germans to have sold any old lump of spray-painted concrete to, to credulous tourists. I bought mine in a perfectly credible, officially <laughs> sanctioned tourist shop in Berlin near Checkpoint Charlie. So I know it's authentic. Does it does it have a sticker saying "credible, authentic piece of of Berlin Wall"? It has the graffiti encased in plastic, so yeah. you know it's real. And, and Florence, and, and I, I, I got mine for journalist friends who had been covering the the wall story. So, I, I, but maybe they took some any other stone and didn't tell me. I but I trust my friend. No, no, they didn't do that. See, I, I, I chiseled my chunk off personally. <gasps> because when I, when I first went to Berlin, which was a it was about a year after the wall had come down, but there was still quite a lot of it left. And there were enterprising East Berliners who were standing by the wall with hammers and chisels, renting them out for, I think, about 10 Deutschmarks for half an hour. It was actually, and it was, I have to say, curiously satisfying. <laughs> if you're arrested You contributed this. to the end of the Cold War, is that it? Uh, yeah, I, 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 I've, I've done my bit for the reunification of Germany and, and the liberation of Europe. And, and all it cost me was, was 10 Deutschmarks, and I 
still have the chunks on a bookshelf at home. Um, are, are there any other bits of national... I mean, obviously, discarded bits of national monument. I'm not advocating uh, looting or anything that, that either of you would care to own if they came up for auction. Hmm... I guess I'd have to know the circumstances of why it was it had come up for auction. So the Eiffel Tower thing, this kind of discarded bits, I think that's legitimate. I would hate to think of people chipping away at the Berlin Wall <laughs> or the Great Wall of China or Mount Rushmore or Hadrian's Wall. I, 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 I have... I, I ha- oh, the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I have met Native Americans who live in South Dakota who want to do a damn sight more to Mount Rushmore than chip away at, with a chisel. Uh, I, I have to say that it's 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 not unequivocally adored uh, in the in the vicinity uh, florence um well i mean as i said a piece of the statue of liberty that would be a beautiful symbol and 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 you would be returning it back back to whence it came obviously yeah <laughs> it, 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 i i again I, I i can see that that would cause a certain amount of difficulty. The, the only other thing I have which is similar, which I, I don't think is anything like as valuable as a piece of Berlin Walls, I, I do own a shard of a vase that belonged to Saddam Hussein, um, which had been dropped by a butterfingered looter in one of his palaces in Baghdad in 2003. But, but it, it had shattered into quite satisfying-sized chunks, which I oh. gathered up and bought home and gave to friends as novelty paperweights. And I still have one. I mean, the thing is, it's it's obviously garbage. It's it's just like a, a very bad copy of a wow. of a, a Ming vase. Well, a scientist gave me a piece of the Rosetta, um, the uh, the uh, this, uh, the, the Rosetta meteor, Stone. not the Rosetta. Sorry, the <laughs> I was um, I mean, <laughs> no, no, I was shocked. No, no, no. The he, um, Interpol will be waiting in the <laughs> yeah. lobby. It's the uh, you know the meteor. Uh, it's also called. Um, anyways, uh, and then I got really excited and it turned out to be a plastic replica that he gives to school children. <laughs> he said, "I'm going to give you a piece." And actually, it's a lovely replica, actually. I got way too excited. And actually, it's a perfectly small-scale model of this amazing meteor that the European Space Agency had landed um, a, uh, you know, a vehicle on. Well, on that somewhat disappointing note, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Linda Yu and Florence Biedemann, thanks for joining us. Uh, today's episode of Midori House was produced by Fernando Augusto Pacheco, researched by Martha Libri and Gabrielle Delasanti. Our studio manager was Kenya Scarlett. Music next at 1900, it's The Urbanist. There's more on the day's main stories on The Daily at 2200. Midori House returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'll be your host for that as well. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening.